Welcome to the podcast of Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Please enjoy as Pastor John opens up the word. Well, if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, as we continue our study this morning, and John has been literally hammering away at a general theme throughout this book. Over and over again, John has been hammering home this idea of God's love and what that means to us as believers and the outworking of that love and just how God moves in our lives through it. And now, as we come to verse 12, John throws us what seems to be a curveball. It just doesn't seem to be connected to all that he has said previously. Look at that in verse 12. He says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Now what he's saying here is really very simple and very straightforward. But oftentimes I don't think that we really believe it. He says no one has seen God at any time. And John is relating to us a very basic principle about God the Father. Nobody has ever seen him at any time. So if someone claims to have seen God the Father, at very best, they are speaking from their own imagination. Because as John says here clearly, no one has seen God at any time, right? And Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17, he says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, and what? invisible what's invisible mean not seen (laughs) and so Jesus told us himself that the father is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth in other words there is no tangible body that God the father has that can be seen And I know that this might contradict what you may have imagined in your mind. And it's very common for us to want to picture God the Father sitting on a throne and or he's walking on the clouds or it's something else that you've conjured up in your mind's eye. But no one has seen God. No one has seen the Holy Spirit for that matter either, although he was was manifested Uh, in tangible form, you know, in the form of a dove or in the form of a flame. But we do know that people have seen God the Son, which is Jesus Christ. And if you remember back at the beginning of this book, John makes it very clear. In 1 John 1, 1, he says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled 
concerning the word of life. So people have seen Jesus Christ in the flesh. But here John says, no one has seen God as in God the Father at any time. And friends, this is the verse that we need to look on and understand with great humility. It really means that you can't figure out God. You're not going to be able to completely comprehend Him. He's above you. He's beyond you. He is immortal. He's invisible. He is God and you are not. <coughs> He's beyond your ability to investigate. So you'll never be able to understand God in His fullness or completeness. Now with all that being said, you can know something about God, but only the things that He has chosen to reveal to you about Himself. And how does He reveal those things to us? Through His Word. But beyond that, we really can't. And so, if no one has seen God at any time, how can we really know if God is living in us or among us? If God is invisible, how do you know that He's there? How do you know that He's working? You know, some people kind of treat God like He's their invisible friend. And this invisible friend never does anything. He never says anything. He never gives any evidence at all that he's there. Yet, this is my invisible friend. But God is not an invisible friend. God is real. And you can really tell where God is. And you can really tell when God is doing something. You know, there are some people who think that the greatest evidence of God's presence, the greatest evidence of God's work is power. And we see that oftentimes when we see those television preachers, right? You know, they just wave their arms and people fall over and we might be tempted to think, wow, that's power. God must really be there. But friends, that's not the evidence of God's presence. That's not the evidence of God's work. Think about the ministry of Jesus for a moment. Were there times in the ministry of Jesus where he didn't seem all that powerful? I mean, think about it. He's had a long, hard day of ministry and they're on the boat, and what's he doing? He's sleeping. I don't know about you, but I don't feel very powerful when I'm sleeping. Think about Jesus hanging on the cross, subjecting his back to being whipped, bearing a crown of thorns on his head. Is that power? Not really. So there were times when Jesus didn't seem very powerful. But can anybody tell me a time when Jesus didn't seem 
loving. No. Always love. Not always power. Power is not the real evidence that God is present and working. Okay, well then there's some people who think that the greatest evidence that God is present and, and that God is working is popularity. Oh, look, there's a multitude. Look at the crowd. I mean, that church is packed with people. And wherever there's a lot of people, well, God must be doing something there, right? So all you need to do is get an audience to experience God's presence and working. If that's all it takes, friends, then let me tell you something. God have been working a few weeks ago when over 25 million people in North America attended the opening of the new Spider-Man movie. On that opening weekend. But I really don't think that God was doing a great work there, do you? So when you think about the ministry of Jesus, I'll admit there were times when Jesus was immensely popular. But there were also times when everybody left him except the twelve. And there were times when he was extremely unpopular, right? So, there were times when Jesus wasn't very popular, but was there ever a time when Jesus wasn't loving? No. So it's not power, and it's not popularity. Okay. Well, some other people think that the greatest evidence that God is present and working are passionate feelings. And, you know, when we're all together and everybody's stirred and there's tears rolling down people's faces and, and there are people that are, are happy and joyful and they just can't stay in their seats or celebrating and all these passionate feelings all around and I mean, that's where the presence of God is, right? That's when he's really doing a work. My friends, if that was really true, then I guess God is at work in every sporting venue around the world or every musical concert where everybody is just cheering and yelling when the entire place is filled with those passionate feelings. God must be doing a great work there, right? No, no, not at all. And again, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, at times, passionate feelings are aroused because of Jesus and what he was doing. And at other times, the ministry of Jesus was greeted with a great big yawn. Those same people that passionately cried out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Were the same people passionately crying out, crucify him a week later. But in all of this, was there ever a time when he was not loving? You see, where God is present, where God is working, there is going 
to be love. That's the evidence. That's how you know. So what John is saying here in verse 12, although no one has seen God at any time, if we love one another, God abides in us. So I can tell God lives in you. And you can tell that God lives in me if there's love for one another. But look what else he says here at the end of verse 12. And his love has been perfected in us. Now it's really important to understand what John is meaning here. The word perfected that he's using here is not meant in the way that we would normally use it. In the Greek language, the idea of perfect means completeness or maturity. So think of it more this way. How can you tell a mature Christian? How can you tell a complete Christian the mature Christian will be marked by love? And if that love is not there, then there is some maturing left to be done, right? We can know the Word. We can pray fervently. We can demonstrate marvelous gifts of the Spirit. But if love is not there, that is the measure of our spiritual maturity. That is what God is looking for, and that is what we should be looking for. Look at verses 13. It says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So stop there for a second. So I need God, the Holy Spirit, to be working that love in my life. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father... I need God the Father to be working that love in my life. The Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so I need Jesus to be working that love in my life. But how do they do it? Look at verse 13 again. It says, By this we know that we abide in Him. And we know from our earlier studies that abide means to live in Him. So substitute abide with live, and now it reads, By this we know that we live in Him. Okay. So how do you know then that your life is in Jesus Christ? Because John says very clearly here, we can know it. Look at the first two words of verse 13. It says, by this. By this we know. Okay then, what is this? Well, John just finished telling you at the end of verse 12. And in verse 12, it says, If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. So if God has put a love in your life for other people, in the family of God, and if that love is living and flowing and growing in your life, 
then by this, you can know that you live in him. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But Don, John doesn't leave it there, does he? Look at verse 13 again. By this we know that we abide in him. But what else does he say? And he in us. That is so precious, my friends. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that God is playing an active role in your life. He's not just standing afar off with his arms crossed telling you to come to him. And then you and I draw close to him and he just kind of steps away. No, no, a thousand times no. But sadly, that's how many people think of God. You know, years ago, Bette Midler came out with a beautiful song called From a Distance. And while it was a beautiful song to listen to, the theology in that song is completely and utterly whacked. There's a line in that song that says, God is watching us from a distance. When we abide in Him, He also abides in us. Not from afar off. It's a two-way relationship. And we know this because the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives within us. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, as the Savior. Jesus, who is God the Son, sent His Spirit to live in our hearts. And that indwelling Spirit assures us that Jesus is living and abiding in us. <clears throat> because John goes on here in verse 14 and he says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Friends, you've got to understand something here. John could speak about this in a way that neither you nor I could ever speak. When we speak of Jesus as our Savior, we have not seen Him with our own eyes. But John walked with Him and talked with him. John beheld the glorification of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. John saw the nails being driven in Jesus' hands and feet. John physically entered the empty tomb. He witnessed the resurrection of his Messiah and John watched Jesus ascend into heaven. And so when he says, we have seen and testify. That's a pretty compelling testimony. He witnessed it personally. <clears throat> and so he goes on to tell us three very important truths in verses 14 and 15. First of all, the Father sent the Son. Do you realize that, my friends? Jesus was not on some independent commando mission. When he came down from heaven to earth, he was sent by God the Father. And what that demonstrates is that God the Father loves you. That God the Father cares about you. 
So please wipe away any notion in your mind of this big angry God the Father. No, He loves you and He sent His Son to accomplish your salvation. Which is the second principle that we see here that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior. Friends, we need that. Each and every one of us, we need a Savior. Now I want you to listen very closely to this and understand what I'm saying. We don't need a teacher. We don't need an example. We don't need another moral lesson. We don't need an advisor. We don't need another conference or workshop or another self-help book. We don't need some expert. We need a Savior. If you're out in the ocean and you're drowning, you're flailing and beginning to take in water, do you need somebody to come out to you and show you a video on how to swim? Seriously. Do you need someone to come out and show you how they swim? Do you need someone to come out and lecture you on the effects of drowning? No, you need a Savior. Someone to come to where you are. Someone to grab you, pick you up out of the water. Someone to take you to safety. And that is why God the Father sent His Son to be our Savior. The third principle is found in verse 15. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you know what it means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? It's not the same as merely knowing it as a fact. Listen carefully. There are many people who know the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They know that fact, yet they're going to hell nonetheless. So there are people who know that. Then there are people who do more than just know it as a fact. That Jesus is the Son of God. They confess it. And do you know what it means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? The whole idea with that word confess means to agree with. You're agreeing with it. Now, you can know a fact without agreeing with it, right? Without saying in your heart, yes, I agree. Yes, that's for me. Yes, I'm in support of that. Yes, I'm putting my faith and trust in that fact. Friends, that's what it means to confess. It isn't just knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. It's confessing it. And John is saying that this is what we must do. It isn't enough to know the facts behind who Jesus is. We must confess that truth that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, I find it rather remarkable that John has been speaking to us about love. And we love hearing about the love of God. 
I mean, I know I do. But at times, he just seems to go on and on about it. You know, like a broken record. Love, 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 love. What's your response? Love, you know. <laughs> but I want you to notice that John will never let us love without the expense or at the expense of the truth. The truth must be there. The truth about who Jesus is. The truth about what he came to do in our lives. And we need to understand that love and truth are not opposites. They don't contradict one another. They work together in our lives. And now how do we respond to that love? Look at verse 16. Two things that God wants you to do in response to this love. He wants you to know it and he wants you to believe it. Verse 16 says, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So we're called to take that love and the grace that God has given, and we're called to know it by experience and believe it. This is what fellowship with God is all about. And you might know that God loves you, but do you know the love of God? Do you believe it? Is it active in your life? And how do you respond to the love of God? You know, some people respond to the love of God with a sense of self-superiority. You know, I'm so great. Everybody loves me, even God. <laughs> that is not the way to receive the love of God. And there's other people who receive the love of God with doubt. Can God really love even me? I mean, I'm not all that. Well, that's not the way to receive the love of God either. And there's some people who respond to God's love with wickedness. Well, God loves me. So I can do whatever I want. He loves me just the way I am. So whatever I want to do, I'm just going to do it. Because God's going to forgive me, right? And even though God loves you and me, he wants us to respond to his love. Not with self-superiority, not with doubt, not with wickedness, but with knowing by experience and believing the love that he has for us. Do you believe that God loves you? Wait a second, that's too easy a question. Of course Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I've known the song since Sunday school. Okay, let me turn that around. And buckle up for this question. What do you think it would take to make you stop believing that God loves you? 
What do you think it would take to make you stop believing that God loves you? Maybe you or a loved one gets sick. Maybe some tragedy comes upon you or your family. Maybe if you lost your job or lost all your finances or if your business went under or someone hurts you or wrongs you egregiously. The Apostle Paul answered that question this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all things. What does all mean? All. In all things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the kind of heart God wants us to have. That's the heart that really believes that God loves them. The heart that says nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God. My friends, your answer to that question this morning determines how much you truly believe the love of God. God has already demonstrated His love towards us once and for all. And if your answer is anything other than nothing, then there really is something lacking. John goes on in verse 17 and says, Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as He is, so are we in this world. My friends, the completeness of God's work in us will be demonstrated on the day of judgment. Friends, you may know in your heart nothing can separate you from God's love. You may know that you are a sinner now. And you may know that you are no better than someone who is going to hell. And you may know that you are only saved by God's grace through faith. And you may know the reality of hell. And you may know the greatness of the salvation that you have. But you don't know it all compared to how you are going to know it. How you're going to know it on the day of judgment. There is no comparison between the two. But my friends, that is not the mind-blowing part of this verse. There's a single word in that verse that just jumps out at me. You know what it is? Boldness. 
Have you ever thought about standing before the judgment seat of Christ? I'm sure we all have, right? And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I get kind of nervous about that. And I've often thought to myself, you know, I'll be happy to survive the judgment. Right? But here in verse 17, John is telling us that the work of God's love in you and me can be so great that we don't just survive the day of judgment. Rather, we have boldness in the day of judgment. The Bible tells us that one day all of humanity will gather before God's great throne you know, the great white throne and face judgment, and that day is coming soon, my friends. <laughs> I don't know when, but we are one day closer to it today than we were yesterday. So why does John say that we can have this boldness? It seems incomprehensible. I mean, I understand it, but I don't understand it. Like, look at verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Okay, now he's going to tell us. Because as he is, so are we in this world. So the first question is, who is he? That's an easy question. Jesus Christ. And it says, as he is, or as Jesus is right now. Okay, so the second question then, how is Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, right? Now let me ask you, do you think for one second that Jesus is filled with total peace and total assurance? I mean, do you think that he's afraid that God the Father is going to get mad at him or something? No. Total boldness, total righteousness, total purity, total justification. His status is one of complete right standing before God and friends as he is so we are in the world look I understand that I can have a right standing with Jesus Christ in this world but I do it by faith it is he who has given me that standing because I trust in him and certainly, this glory is in us now. But it's just in seed form. It's not fully developed into what it will be. But it has demonstrated its presence in us. By our love for one another and our agreement with God's truth. And that gives us the ability to serve him with boldness. Verse 18 and 19 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved 
us. And we'll cover these verses more fully next Sunday. But there's something powerful, something very precious in these two verses. How the love of God just abolishes the fear in our hearts because God loves you that much. He wants you to receive that love and have it transform your life and give you a love for others in the body of Christ. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for that incredible love. You sent the Son to be our Savior. Jesus came, He lived, He died, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and He left us His Holy Spirit. He didn't leave us comfortless. And now we have the Spirit of Christ living within us and the evidence of that. The evidence of God in this world is love. It is the love that we have one for another. The world will know that we're Christians by the love that we have for each other. Not for them, but just for how we love each other. So Lord, please stir up that love in our hearts. And Lord, now as we come to your table, we just pray that you will really help us to connect the dots here between what you're doing here in 1 John 4 and the love that you showed at the table. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.